We're going to start where we left off this morning. At least we're going to go back to the same place where we were this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, so I invite you to turn your Bibles there. We're going to read a couple of passages together. Um, in the very first verses of that chapter, the Apostle writes to Timothy and says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. If I were to give you some instructions, and the idea here I wanted you to get something done, and I said, okay, first of all, what would that indicate? Uh, what does that mean to say something is first of all? Well, if you're thinking about the, uh, a list of things to do, that there's going to be more to come, uh, that it might mean that this is the first thing I want you to do in chronological orders, first in sequence, and that's do this first. Or it might be, and this is even true in terms of the original language, that it might be that I'm going to give you several instructions and this is the one that I think is most important. Or this is the one I don't want you to overlook. You first of all, or you do this above all, you do this first. It might be that both of those things are involved in Paul's use of that terminology here. Obviously he's talking about prayer, and as we talked about even this morning, uh, he says some very powerful things about how our lives must be matched uh, uh, by the prayers that we offer. Uh, And when he then begins to talk about prayer, certainly I believe that Paul would be saying to Timothy that praying is absolutely uh, essential, that it's fundamental, that it's a priority in the work that you do and the work uh, of God that others are going to do. So Paul's urging for prayer, as we're going to look at in view in this passage, uh, is first and it's foremost in terms of what he says. But all I want us to notice tonight is uh, what Paul is really encouraging about prayer. Because there are some very specific things here that he mentions in this text. Who did he want Timothy to pray for and the other brethren at Ephesus? Prayer was for what purpose? What was the end or goal of prayer? What was to be accomplished by praying? I don't think that, I think we could probably turn off the screen here and not look at this passage and come up with some pretty good answers to those questions from what we understand in the scriptures. But I think it's good for us to look at what Paul evidences here to the evangelists and put them in the context in which he says them. And also to understand that there are many things here that he says about praying that reflect upon our very times and I think are very uh, are significantly uh, uh, relevant to the times in which we're living when we think about prayer. What he presents here in this particular context, as we notice, is a variety of expressions. Uh, what does prayer sound like when you hear other people pray? Or when somebody prays, does it always sound the same? If the same people's praying, you can almost tell what they're going to say next or you can anticipate their words or the idea that their tone never changes, uh, the expression never changes. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think when we we look at the way the Bible describes prayer here, as Paul describes it, he utilizes what we might think of as sort of a comprehensive list of expressions that describe prayer. He says, you are to offer supplications, The word supplications 
uh, has to do with begging. It's a word that means uh, that which an individual uh, pleads for. The, to supplicate means to beg or to plead. And one author says it speaks to the deepest and most specific needs of the heart. So a supplication is not a general prayer. It is more specifically the idea that you have something in mind to which you certainly desire in a very earnest way for God to do for you, to accomplish, to give to you, and therefore you beg for it. We think about Israel in the time of Jeremiah and the difficulty of their, uh, of their relationship to God. That Jeremiah describes Israel as coming to God with weeping and supplications. Now that gives us a picture in our mind, doesn't it? The book named Lamentations that Jeremiah wrote about Israel's relationship to God is connected with this idea of their praying or approaching God with great sorrow. And there are many times in Scripture where the weeping and supplications are, are, are linked together in terms of a person's appeal. Daniel said he came before the Lord confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God. And so there are times in which the supplication is, represented, is connected with the aspect of remorse for sin or asking God to forgive sin or feelings very humble before God and therefore begging for, you see, forgiveness. And then he uses the word prayers, which is the most general word for, for what we're talking about here this evening. The idea of making a request to God in the most general sense is a prayer, and that's the most common word. God's people have always been praying, and you can't go very many pages in, in, uh, in the Bible without finding prayer being mentioned in some form or another. Job and David and Nehemiah and Daniel, and Paul, all of those individuals, their lives were punctuated by the aspect of prayer. And then he uses the word intercessions. And again, intercessions, that very terminology, presents a different expression of prayer. That to intercede means to, to pray in behalf of someone else. The terminology itself is, is rather insightful because literally the word means to fall in with someone uh, in the sense that you would get involved with them, that you don't know them and then you would get involved with them. That, that's, the, that's the literal root of the word, but it, it came, to be, came to be understood and intercession was where you, you were so concerned about someone that you would take their petitions to God for them. So you would intercede for them. Abraham interceded for Sodom. Moses interceded for Israel. That there was a petition to God that was made not for the one for the person who was saying it, but for someone else. I suppose the deepest meaning of the word is, where, is the way that this particular word is used to describe Jesus' spiritual work for us. That He intercedes for us, Hebrews chapter 7, that He ever lived to make intercession for us. Now, not in the aspect of a prayer, but with His own blood. He stands beside us and He is deeply concerned about us. You see, He falls in with us for our cause and therefore He gives His blood for our sins. Prayer is intercession. Prayer is also giving of thanks. And we've talked about this some in the, in the recent past. The idea of gratitude and the place of gratitude. That Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that in everything give thanks. That it's a general environment of prayer. That a person is grateful for what God has done and he's responding in prayer to the blessings that God has provided. So it's inherent that he recognizes the provision, the power of God, the working of God to pray. So there's a, there's a foundation to prayer, isn't it? There's experiences that provide the avenue or the environment for prayer. 
So we pray to God because of things. We pray to God because uh, someone else has a problem. We pray to God because we need something. We pray to God, you see, because God has already done something for us in response to thanksgiving. So prayer in all these expressions is a response to God in different circumstances and ultimately for even different reasons. But Paul not only presents here a variety of expressions as he talks about prayer in these passages, but he provides for us a pretty comprehensive prayer list. You know, we have our own prayer list, don't we? We put one in the bulletin, and maybe you have one of your own that you use in your daily prayers. And so you write names down, you write people down, you write circumstances down, things you want to pray for. How does Paul say it here? Well, he says, pray for all men. That pretty covers, pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Who do you pray for? Well, you pray for all men. And we noticed this morning that the word for men in this passage is anthropos, which means human beings. And so that makes it really comprehensive. He's not just talking about males and females. He's talking about every individual. Who do we need to pray for? Well, certainly that's a legitimate question. But if we take that particular question to this passage, then Paul gives us a pretty challenging answer to that. That we have to pray for everybody. Now, there's some ways in which that passage, I think, as I mentioned, is challenging because I think about my own prayer life, and maybe you think about yours. I'm very inclined to pray for my own family, my own, for my fellow Christians, the people I'm close to, and the people that no doubt you're close to, the people that are inside our group, so to speak, the people that we know about and and, and maybe that are praying for us. Those are the people that most often punctuate our prayer list. So how do I recognize Paul's command here to pray for everyone when I don't pray for everyone? I don't even know everyone. I believe it seems certain that Paul's not commanding me to include every person that exists or that lives in my prayers. That you see that would be logistically impossible because I don't know everybody. And I don't know what I would pray about everyone if I were to put their name in some way upon a list. So what's Paul mean when he says pray for every person, pray for every man? I believe what he's indicating here is that there is in the perspective and the attitude of of the Christian towards prayer no one that is to be naturally excluded from the prayer list. That there's nobody that, that, that I look at and say, well, I don't need to pray for them or they don't need God's provision or that I have some reason or some rationalization where I don't have an interest in praying for that individual. It puts the aspect, the avenue of prayer on the same level in which it puts the interest of God. Then who's God interested in? Well, He's interested in everybody. Who does God love? He loves everybody. Now, we're going to try to tie that in from a spiritual perspective as we, as we go through Paul's words here. But I think what Paul's saying when he says, pray for everyone, is that prayer, as the humble activity of the Christian, is never to be selfishly administered. It's not something where we decide what ultimately ought to be prayed about, and it's all determined by what we want or what we desire. We have to look at it from the perspective of of God's work and God's desires and what we're asking God to do. And that includes, you see, everybody. Now I want to ask a question here we're going to come back to a little bit because I think sometimes maybe we need to think about it a little bit. When you pray and when I pray, do we pray that God will do what He wants or do we pray that God will do what I want? And I think there's, there's some implications of these passages to the answer to that question. There's something that God, I want, I want God to do. So I pray that God will do what I want Him to do. Or should I be praying that God will do what He wants to do? And is there a difference between that? But in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, 
You pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Now, he, he expanded the list to include anybody, but he didn't, everybody, but he didn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it at all men. He specifically mentions in this context praying for kings and all those who are in authority. He won't leave those off the list. Now, why is that so? Again, I don't, as the text tells us why Paul would insert in this comprehensive list the specific mentioning of kings and people in authority. Could it be that, that those individuals that are in authority, in positions of authority in Paul's day and in Timothy's life were those that might be naturally excluded from the list? The Christians might be the same way they back then, the way they are now, many times, and that is it feel like the government and those who are in positions of authority, those who have exercise authority over their life, are not interested in spiritual things. Or they feel that the praying for those individuals would in no way impact my spiritual life, my life before God, or meet a requirement that God would place before me in prayer. What we do know about the day, the political situation of Paul's day is that just like sometimes it is in the world today, Christians of Paul's day were the political targets of the rulers of their own society. That those who were in positions of authority, many of them during the Ro- in the Roman Empire, were actively persecuting and even killing Christians. The Emperor Nero was certainly involved in that. About the time that Paul was writing this particular letter to Timothy, that was becoming more and more a prominent staple of the Christian life is that he had to fear the government and what the, Roman, what the Roman Empire would do to God's people. So that you had a situation where the people that were the kings, the people that were the authorities and the rulers were as anti-Christ as you could get. And yet here's the apostle saying, I want you to pray for everybody and let me mention to you, you also need to pray for the rulers and you also need to pray for those who are in positions of authority. Well, why should they do that? Is there... Is there a lesson for us in coming to understand why Paul would ask Christians to pray for those in authority? And does that relate to us? Should we pray for those in authority over us, for our president, for congressmen and congresswomen, for governors, for judges, for those who are in positions of authority? All the way down the list, are they to be included in that every man? And if they are included in that, what's the goal of that? For what purpose should we pray? For kings and for rulers. Well, I believe the text here helps us to answer that. Paul doesn't leave it without an answer even to Timothy. He presents in verse 2 as well a noble goal to that. Why should you pray for rulers and those who are over you? Paul says specifically that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We should pray for those who are in authority because it's through them that we are able to secure quiet and peaceful lives. Now you might not see that connection but the apostles making that connection here, he's certainly telling Timothy that this is a goal for praying for kings and those who are over you because ultimately they can provide for you a quiet life. We might be tempted to reply that if those are the very people that are making our lives most unquiet, those people that are over us. And Timothy maybe could have thought that as well. But how can those people make my life better when they're the ones who are so involved in making my life terrible? The Greek word here that's used for quiet is the word ermos, which indicates tranquility arising from outside. It's a word that means this aspect of outward peace in our own vernacular. That this peace can be disrupted from the outside. 
And we often pray that, don't we? You hear others pray about it as well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you that we won't be molested from outside sources as we worship God in our life. Brother Charlie prayed, rightfully so this morning, that we would be secure and no one would come in from the outside and attempt to disrupt our worship. And that's precisely what I believe Paul's presenting here from the standpoint of what the opposite of that is. That there can come in disruptions from the outside and people can persecute us from outside and make, make our lives very, you see, unpeaceful in that regard. But Paul says, pray about your rulers because that's one of the goals, that you would be able to live a quiet life. The word Paul uses for tranquil here is a word that, similar to the first one about the aspect of quiet as it is in some translations. Some translations say peaceable here. But it indicates tranquility arising from within, Vine says, causing no disturbance to others. So it's the idea that a person is quiet within or that there is peace within the group or even within the person. He is at peace, we might say. And so there are lives that have that characteristic about there, where the individuals themselves are not anxious or upset or terrorized. That they're able to live lives where they're able to have inward peace. Now I put those two words together. Outward peace, inward peace. What I picture in my mind is exactly what God created people to have. That if we could go back and we could experience the garden before sin, if that paradise was, the, the atmosphere of that paradise was, uh, you see, uh, accessible by us, we'd recognize that that's the way it was. That to be at peace with God was to be protected from outside sources and from anything that would disrupt life. It was also to have a peace within the person's self that he had a good conscience and certainly he was at peace within himself. He was tranquil. He was quiet. And all of that. Now Paul says, you need to pray for rulers and you need to pray for authorities. That you might have that. I don't know when I think about my own life and I think about society and uh, this country in which I've lived that I could ever say without any reservation that I've seen that. Seen that from the standpoint of everybody, even among God's people, having this type of peace that we're describing here, the ideal peace. Yet what Paul's saying, I believe, in this context is that God has provided avenues through which peace, both inward and outward peace, are able to be secured by the Christian in the context of physical governments. So this passage helps us, like other passages, to understand the place, the relationship between physical human governments and our personal lives. That the Bible teaches that God has ordained governments and rulers of the world for the purpose of creating environments of peace and quiet. Romans chapter 13, Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and authorities that exist are appointed, some translations say ordained by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Notice that. The rulers are, you see, they are a terror to those who do evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority, Paul says? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is a God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. He goes on to say, therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all to their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs 
Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. Now I read over that passage and I recognize that one thing Paul is certainly presenting here is the purpose of human governments and the Christian's relationship to human authorities. That the human authorities are established for the very purpose of resisting evil, of being able to see to, uh, to uh, stand up against those who would bring disruption to society. The anarchist, the person, the individual who does not want to go by the rules, the individual that would bring about, you see, uh, situations of terror and unpeace. The authorities that God has placed you see, on this earth, have as their purpose, by God's appointment, to resist that and to fight against it. And so what I recognize is that the part that I play in that, understanding that God has placed governments and rulers in place for that very purpose, the part that I play in that is submission. That my role is to submit to rulers. Why? Because that's the avenue through which God will provide for peaceful and quiet life. So peaceful and quiet life come through submission, not through rebellion. That's a principle I believe we certainly need to keep in mind as we look at what the Bible teaches and as we're faced in our own society with more and more situations where the government stands against us. That God's principle never changes. That true peace comes through submission to authority. Now, the greatest authority is the authority of God, and there may come times, even as there were in the New Testament, where the authority of men tries to usurp the authority of God, and I must obey God rather than men. But the principle remains the same. That true peace does not come through rebelling against authority, it comes through submitting authority, beginning with God's authority. And that's why the appointment of governments for the purpose by God is so crucial to this particular equation. When the Lord was asked about paying taxes imposed by an ungodly government in Matthew chapter 22, He said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the thing to God the things that are God's. Paul told Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. And then Peter says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So, several places, through different apostolic writings, the New Testament tells us, that the Christian's responsibility is to submit to human authority. And submitting to human authority is the way, ultimately, to peaceful existence. Now, what we connect with that is also the fact that Christians should aspire to this purpose. And I don't think we have much problem recognizing that most people would naturally aspire to be left alone and be quiet and peaceful rather than to be in turmoil or to have situations of war. But I think what we are going to recognize is that there's a higher calling to that and there's a reason why the Bible would tell us that which we think we might naturally know and that is that people of God need to aspire to live quiet lives. The gospel is not advanced through chaos and disorder. In fact, chaos and disorder work against the purposes of God. And that principle may go all the way back to understanding the, the, the principle of, uh, of creation itself. That God took chaos and brought order to it so that ultimately he could say, serve the purposes of man and his own purposes. But we need to recognize that the gospel is not advanced through disruption. I saw a story on the news and I, I'm not commenting a lot about it because I don't know a lot about it except sometimes you just see parts of a story and you sort of get the outline of it. A young man who was, went on to school property to preach the, what he thought was the gospel of Jesus Christ and he took with him a Bible and he started uh, talking to and preaching uh, in a public way to these kids who were coming out of the school and he got in trouble for it. 
there were some some of the young people I think who were maybe resisting him in that well and he was moving closer and closer to the school grounds and the policeman came on the scene and arrested him not for preaching the gospel interestingly enough though that's what he was doing but the charge against him was disrupting the peace you ever heard of that charge he was disrupting the peace now I'm not commenting on whether or not he should or should not have been doing that but I think about the aspect of the atmosphere of preaching the gospel and I say to myself that's not what God wants he doesn't want me as a Christian to be known as one who disrupts the peace even if it's for the, if it's for the purpose of trying to get people to accept the truth because peacefulness and quietness is the best environment for making known the gospel of Jesus Christ so if I can pursue peace with all men as much as possible that's what God wants me to do if I can live a quiet life and preach the gospel and make a, and, and, and do God's work, then that's what He wants me to do. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, you see, that uh, you also should aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you walk, they walk properly toward those who are on the outside and that you may lack nothing. Notice the aspect of living a peaceful and quiet life is connected in the Apostle's words with my relationship to those who are out, on the outside. And I would take that to mean those who are not Christians. That the peaceful life is the environment from which I can have the best standing between those to those who are outside. For what purpose? We're going to talk about that. But certainly the Christian's purpose is to turn that person from being one on the outside to one's on the inside. But Paul goes on to say later on in the, in the, in the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians to those who would be disorderly among them that they are to be told that they should work in quietness. And so again we see the aspect of disorderly life being that which is contrary to the purposes of God. Now, in addition to the goal of a peaceful and tranquil life, in the context of 2 Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are to pray for all men so they can live their lives peaceably and quietly, so they can live their lives, he says, in godliness and reverence. That you may live peaceable and quiet lives in godliness and reverence. And again, the words here, are, I think, are, are, are rather telling. The Greek word Paul uses for godliness, eusebeo, is means to be devout, denotes that the piety which characterized by a Godward attitude does that which is well-pleasing to him. Godliness is not being like God. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because it's at the very heart of our theme through Second, through First and Second Timothy that we would uh, train ourselves to be godly people. Uh, that godliness is not in the Bible, uh, being like God. There's a sense in which... Uh, godliness would push us towards that or advance us towards the aspect of having godlike characteristics. But more specifically, godliness by definition in- indicates or denotes a devoutness to God. It's a piety or a reverence before God. It is an attitude which tells the per- which moves, motivates the person to do what pleases God above everything else. So godliness is connected with humility and certainly it's this aspect of wanting to do what God would have me to do. The Greek word for reverence here is a word that means venerableness or dignity. One translation of it is moral earnestness. And it's connected with godliness in the aspect that it has to do with an attitude towards doing what God says. One commentator made the connection between these two words. If there is a connection to them, godliness may refer to proper attitudes and dignity may refer to proper behavior. So if we are godly people, we act in a dignified way or we act in a reverent way in terms of our behavior. So Christians should aspire 
And they should pray to the rulers that are over them, and they should aspire to a quiet life so that they might be able to live lives of godliness with reverence. Now, both of these attitudes, interestingly enough, contribute to the peacefulness of a person's life. If a person learns to be reverent, dignified, he gets along with other people, he's going to put the, 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 he's going to put the desires and the needs of other people above himself. He's going to live a life, you see, that's going to be fulfilling in many different ways. But one thing that's interesting when we look at what the Scriptures teach is that there are times in which godliness runs contradictory to or contrasts the aspect of a peaceful life. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we have to recognize that about that, that though God wants us to live and we aspire to live a quiet life, living a godly life may cause us persecution. It may cause us to live in a time when we are not tranquil in our lives, and no doubt Timothy was experiencing that as well. But what Paul's saying is that we should seek to be quiet and peaceful in society, and if we suffer, we should suffer not because we desire to be disruptive, or not because we are being disruptive, but we suffer because of godliness. That our suffering and our persecution is the result of the fact that we are aspiring to be quiet, not because we refuse to be quiet. And there's a difference there in terms of well, what, how, what we experience in our life. Now, Paul reinforces this. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. He reinforces this aspect of the quiet lifestyle by affirming in the next verse, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, the this there goes back and modifies the aspect here of not only praying for rulers, but also the purpose for which we pray for rulers, and that is the peaceful and quiet environment that we desire and that ultimately should come or can come by the proper exercise of authority. Now, what I recognize is that that's a powerful motivation for us to pray for those who are over us. And it might be that the more difficult times become, the, more, the less and less peace we have in our life, the more we'll be inclined to pray for those who are over us, realizing that maybe they could do something about it, maybe the situation could change, and we pray that things would be different than they are. And it might motivate us in a more earnest way because of the environment, the physical environment that we find ourselves in that no doubt the first century Christians found themselves in. We want to live at peace. We want to be, have quiet and tranquil lives. But let me ask again, because I want, to, I want to see how Paul advances this. But let me ask again, do we pray for what you see we want God to do or what God wants to do? This is a noble goal, that we would pray for our rulers so that we could live peaceable lives. Who doesn't want that? It's what we all desire. But is that all there is, even in this exhortation? In verse 4, he presents what I think is the spiritual goal here. He says that we should pray to God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now Paul adds that to the element of living peaceable life and living in godliness and living in reverence. He mentions here that God desires all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I might have you notice that this is another reference to the term all men. That he's told us to pray for all men and that we should even pray for those who rule over us. So there's this comprehensive prayer list that includes everybody, but then he injects in the discussion here and in the motivation that God also wants all men to be saved. And so I think what we see here in this is that God's telling us what pleases Him. He tells us both things. 
He tells us what would please us, and that is to live in peace and quiet and have things good for us and for things to go well. But He also tells us what He wants. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, God can't live outside of peace. There's nothing that can disrupt His experience as there can ours. But the apostle would not have us simply pray for rulers and those who are over us to try to change our society simply for the purpose of making our present life better. Oh, there's a higher calling to that. He says, God wants all men to be saved. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what God wants to accomplish. And so how will we get that done? How will that be accomplished? Well, God's the one who will do it, but certainly in the context of this passage, what Paul's presenting here is that when we pray to our rulers and we're going to pray for those who are over us, that one reason we ought to do that is because there is a higher spiritual thing that could be accomplished as a result of that. Peace and tranquility in society, however it might come, are simply ingredients toward that greater spiritual goal in God's eyes of converting the lost and saving people that are lost. And that's the part of this that somewhat challenges me and why I ask that question. Not, the question is not if I will pray that I will be at peace and there will be tranquil lives before me and that things will get better. I can't hardly help but pray for that. Can you? It's not a question of whether or not I will pray for that. The question is why will I pray for that? What's the reason that I want things to be calm and tranquil and quiet? Because that's the environment from which individuals could come to know the truth. So that all men might have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God wants to save everybody. And one way that He can bring that about is through the utilization of governments that He's ordained to provide circumstances of freedom and peacefulness and quietness so that individuals can come to know the truth rather than, you see, be persecuted for the truth. So I should pray because God wants to save people. Paul reaffirms the urgency and the direction, I think, of this spiritual task at hand when he goes on in verses 5 and 6. And he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now you look at that passage, and I've read over this a couple of times, maybe you have too, and it's, it's that, that doxology that's there, this this summary of the gospel story seems to be injected in a rather strange place in the context of the statement system. He's talking about prayer and praying for government officials and having a peaceful life. And then all of a sudden there is this doxology of the aspect that there's one God and one mediator between God and man and Jesus Christ and he died for us and ransomed us for us so that it might be testified. Why is that there? It's hinged on the passage that precedes that. That says that God wants everybody to be saved. And that that's why we should pray for peaceful environment. So that everybody could be saved. And so here's the truth about it. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. There is only one way for them to be saved. And they they need to know this. And not everybody knows this. Even though it's been testified in due time. So the real element that's involved here, I believe, or at least one of the very important elements involved, is that I need to pray that God would create the most advantageous environment possible where individuals could come to know this that they do not know. That there's only one way to be saved. And there's only one Redeemer. And there's only one pathway. And everybody needs to know about this. 
Now what that means is that praying for my president and praying for my congressman and mentioning those who are over me in my prayers is not about me. It's not about my life. It's about God. And more importantly, it's about those people that are lost out there. That's why I need to pray about that. Because there are people who are lost. And if there's any blessing in this peacefulness and this quietness that you and I have been blessed with, it's in the opportunity that I have to share the gospel with those who I live beside. Because there are a lot of places in the world where that's not possible. Or at least if it is possible, it comes with a great deal of suffering and a great deal of unpeacefulness and there is no tranquility in a person's life that does it. And so Paul says to Timothy in the midst of this this time in which it was exactly that way, Timothy, pray for those who are over you. Not because you think they're good people or they'll go do things for you, but pray that that situation will exist because you need to teach the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's what needs to take place. Now let me ask you this. Knowing that, if that's the situation that exists, knowing that, are you more inclined to pray or less? If it's not about me, but it's about the people that are lost. You see, that relates a little bit to what we said this morning, that prayer cannot be selfishly administered. It cannot be that our prayers will hinge upon or in any way be, you see, made less by the aspect that I'm praying for someone that's outside or someone that I, that I despise or that I hate or that I'm angry with. All of those things have no place in prayer because praying, you see, has to do with the spiritual purpose of saving the lost. Let me say this as we close. We've been blessed, and I think you, know, you recognize this maybe more than I do. We've been blessed beyond our recognition, certainly beyond our merit, with a peaceful and quiet society in which to live godly and reverent lives. And there's all of us, no matter how difficult our life would be, who has to agree with that statement when we compare ourselves with other societies and with other times. America is a beautiful place to live and a wonderful place of freedom. And it might be that on down the road, maybe even within our own lifetime, that that would come to an end. We don't want that to happen. And I would suggest that many of us pray every day that that will not happen. But I would challenge you. There's something more to think about in those prayers than just whether or not we live with physical freedom in this wonderful country. And what the benefits are. There's something that the Christian cares more deeply about than whether or not he has the freedom to move about in society and he doesn't have somebody knocking down his door. It's whether or not he has the opportunity to teach someone else the truth. And what that becomes challenging to me is I wonder how much I appreciate that by analyzing how many times I use the opportunity of this freedom and peaceful and quietness to actually do that. We can aspire to peace and quietness, encourage others to seek peace. But most of all, we need to get busy doing God's work for God's purposes. And if He sees us doing what He wants to be done, and we're praying not for what we want God to do, but what God wants to do, if we're praying about that, then I'm suggesting to you He will provide the peace and the quietness to get it done. And that may be the avenue through which this takes place. A time in which the gospel is given free course as it has been in our own society. That that might continue for that very purpose that the kingdom of God would advance. So Paul's aspiring young Timothy to understand things that go beyond just whether or not things will be, uh, will be better or, more, or easy in life. But whether or not things will be right and moral. And more importantly, whether or not things will go according to God's works and God's purposes. Thank you for your attention. Uh, we take out your songbooks. We want to close by encouraging someone who might not who might be here and not be a Christian might not be a Christian to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ.
the words we just talking about are at the center of that. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And that is Christ Jesus, the man. He has interceded for you with his own blood. If you'll turn from your sin and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, he will forgive you. While we stand and while we sing.